Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. We welcome you to Christ the King here at Crimson Tees, a couple friends visiting and others who may be new with us this morning, and then those of you who are here every week. I'm glad all of you are here. There are Bibles that are provided, or maybe you brought your own with you. I hope either way you'll turn to the text. We read the Bible every week. We hear sermons from the Bible every week. Because this is where we believe God primarily speaks to us. And not only to deliver content... But as I pray with the team every before every service, also that it would transform us as we hear the word and then come to the table. Now we've been two weeks in First John, and this is now only the third of four sermons that we're going to take in First John as we just look at a small part of the letter during this Easter season. And in fact, we're not going to get anything beyond 1 John 3, I've decided, because I thought I was going to cover all of verses 11 to 24 today, but you know how this goes. So instead, we're going to do this in two parts, and I'm going to focus on just verses 11 to 18 this week of chapter 3, and then verses 19 to 24 next week. There's no way I can say everything about this chapter in one go. Then we come to Ascension, then to Pentecost, and then it's new sermon series in Samuel starting after that. So we haven't spent much time in 1 John. But if you were to boil the letter down to one theme, I think it'd be walking in the light of God. Walking in the light of God. God is light, John says in chapter 1. We dealt with that uh, two weeks ago a little bit. And so if we're Christians, we will walk in that light. There's 1 John in a nutshell. John's written his letter so that we know that we are walking in the light. That's his purpose. How do you know if you're walking in the light? As God is light. Well, we haven't talked a lot about it, but in 1 John there's a cycle of tests. John doesn't call them tests. But there's a cycle of tests that he comes to more than once in the letter. And here in chapter 3, where we are, John now returns to a theme that he started in chapter 2, which I know we didn't cover. But the theme was that old commandment, John calls it, that is at the same time a new commandment, that is the command Jesus gave his disciples to love one another. I don't think it'd be too strong at all to say that love is at the core of John's understanding of the gospel. The love, first of all, that God has for us, and then also the transforming power of God's love in our lives as we're born again and become loving people. Women and men who love God 
and love others. And can I just say, that's always been the point. That's always been the point. You remember Paul in Galatians 5? Faith working through love is what counts, he says. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Paul writes, quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And every week we hear Jesus' summary of the law in our communion service, don't we? The law that we pray for the Lord to write on our hearts, and it is the twofold command to love. The Apostle Paul said in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge, Timothy, the aim of our teaching, our doctrine, our pastoral ministry, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the aim, Paul says. That's what we're bringing about. This is what it all boils down to. So if you want to read on your health as a Christian, look no further than this, where John says in verse 14 of our text, whoever does not love abides in death. Now, like I did last week, I'm going to back up a little bit from where the passage that was read a few moments ago began because I know we spent very little time on verses 9 and 10 last week, so let me fold those in here, so that we're now considering this morning, technically, verses 9 to verse 18 of 1 John 3. And the main idea I'm on about, having already now sort of summarized the idea that God is light and we walk in the light, and that that takes primary expression in love, both as God loves and then we love, I mean, that's 1 John in a nutshell. But now the main idea I'm on about here in verses 9 to 18 is that John presents the two ways of living. Two ways of living, two routes to follow. So that I've now divided these verses into three segments, and they each have two ways, two sides to consider. First, verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10, where John says that every person has one of two paternities. Paternities. Every person is either a child of God or a child of the devil, John says. Either God is your father or the devil is your father in some sense. Verses 9 and 10. Then in verses 11 and 12, John says that every person has two options. To love or to hate love or to hate. And then in verses 13 to 18, John says that there are two paths then to follow, the outworking of all this, either the path of death or the path of life. Two paternities, two options, two paths. And they're all linked, of course. If your father is God, then you choose love. And you are one of those who has passed out of death into life. But if your father is the devil, then you choose hate in some way, and you abide in death. Whoever does not love abides in death, John says. 
It's very classic John. It's the two ways. It's the, it's the polarizing choice. This is the way his rhetoric works. It's powerful. And so we'll move through the text and consider those three sections and the two routes then that open up before us in them. So first of all, that's the structure. Verses 9 and 10, two paternities. Two paternities. Verse 9, no one born of God, John says, makes a practice of sinning. And it's always crucial to emphasize that John's not teaching Christians will be sinless. He's simply saying that no Christian will carry on in a sinful practice as though it was no big deal. No Christian will be okay with sin in their lives. Doesn't mean they've ceased to struggle against it. Doesn't mean they won't fall back into it again. We covered chapter 1 in the beginning of 2 a couple weeks ago. We saw what happens when we sin and confess. But it does mean that they hate it. Christians will not make a practice of sinning. Why? For, John says, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you've been born of God something has happened. Something eternal and life-changing has happened. God's seed abides in you, says John. That is, you are a child of God, his offspring in a sense. The divine life of God has been implanted in you through a new birth, a new nature. A divine nature has been imparted to you and the life of God is now your life. So no wonder John makes such ambitious demands. If you place your trust in Jesus Christ by repenting of sins, trusting him for forgiveness, committing yourself to lead the new life in obedience to him as Lord, then something new has happened. You're a child of God, and that is not just a status that you have. It's a reality. Inside of you, it changes your heart and your desires. That is to say, God's seed abides in you. You cannot make a practice of sinning. Because John's quite strong, isn't he? I know we didn't read all these verses, but listen to a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 2. Here's 1 John 2 verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, John says, and the truth is not in him. Do you really mean that, John? How about 1 John 2, verse 9? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Really? Are you serious? 1 John 3, verse 6 from last week. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Do you really mean that, John? Yes. Yes and yes and yes. Or is our view of the transforming power of God in the life of the believer so weak that we shrink back from statements like that? Maybe 
our hesitation around what John has to say in this letter, if you have any hesitation. Maybe it has its root in a deficient view of what it means to be born again. What it means to have the Spirit of God indwelling you. You see John ends this passage with a reference to the Spirit in verse 24. What it means to be children of God. Because that's powerful, brothers and sisters. Remember last week, verse 8 of chapter 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy, to destroy the sin that formerly enslaved you, not to weaken it, to destroy it, to utterly defeat sin. That's the end to which God sent his Son to die and to be raised again. That truth, that powerful truth must sink to the depth of our hearts. You and I will not walk in the light. You and I will not walk in the light if we think all God did was help us out a little. Just sort of give us enough to get started. But now it's up to me to do it and I mean, what does it really matter? Because I'll be okay in the end anyway, right? No. The practice of righteousness John requires of us is not autonomous virtue. It is the inexorable result of having God as your Father. Can I say that again? The practice of righteousness John requires of us is the inexorable result of having God as your father. You are born of God, Christian. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore by him, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8. John's no stronger than Paul is. He just puts it more bluntly. How dare we limit the love and power of God, dear friends. How dare we? We do that if we suggest that John's demands are just too much, too hard, too idealistic. As if God hasn't really done what he needs to do to set us free from the penalty and the power of sin in our lives. He has. It's finished. You're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That means sin is unnatural in a very fundamental way to you. It is no longer of your nature. It's not of the new nature that is born in you by the Spirit. This is the gospel. So that John can say, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God. 
and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And of that verse, I'll make only this one astonishing, sobering observation. That according to the Bible, if you're not a child of God, you're not just doing your own thing. You're not just living how you want, free from all constraint, the wise, distant observer. No, John says, if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. That means, at least, you're not morally neutral. It means you share in some way this nature of the evil one. It means your life is in open rebellion against God and your only hope is not to try to change that yourself, but to come to God and ask him to make you his child instead and thereby to destroy the works of the devil. There are two paternities. Secondly, more rapidly now, lest you be concerned, verses 11 and 12 present for us two options, love and hate. And of course, they continue on from the source of the uh, whose child you are. Verse 11, for this is the message. For, here's the reason, this is why you love. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, John's moved from the abstract to the concrete, hasn't he? But the move isn't arbitrary. Because to practice righteousness is to love, since God is love. Yes. To practice righteousness is to love, since God is love. And so from the beginning, when his readers first heard the gospel, the message has not changed. The call is to love, to love because we've been loved by God and his son, Jesus Christ. The moral imperative for Christians to love one another was at the heart of the apostolic gospel. It still is at the heart of the gospel because God, who as light is holy, righteous, and true, and loving, demands and empowers such a response on the part of his children. And the moral calculus here isn't difficult. There's two options you love or you hate. And it's the negative that John starts with. And we'll come to the positive one in a bit. But first comes verse 12. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Now that's an explicit referencing to the account in Genesis 4, of course, in which Cain murdered his brother Abel, after Abel's sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock was accepted by God, while Cain's sacrifice of the fruit of the ground wasn't. And according to Hebrews 11, verse 4, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God. Why? Because it was done in faith. Cain's evidently wasn't 
done in faith. There's no indication in the text that there was anything technically deficient with Cain's sacrifice. It was the heart. And it's ultimately Cain's lack of faith that led to hatred for his brother, which rose until it finally came to murder. You know, I didn't even notice this, but did you notice in our psalm, Psalm 66, it just struck me reading at this service, in the psalm we did, which gets into sacrifices, right? Psalm 66, look at verse 18. This psalmist made his sacrifices and cried to the Lord, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do you see that? You could bring all the sacrifices. You could do everything technically correct. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It's Cain. It's ultimately Cain's lack of faith. John summarizes all of this by saying Cain was of the evil one. Listen to Genesis 4, verse 6 and following, which immediately following the rejection of Cain's offering, the Lord said to Cain, Genesis 4, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain didn't. Cain chose hate, and his hate led to murder. And John provides even more insight into why Cain killed his brother. It wasn't because Abel was evil. It was because Abel was righteous. Verse 12, Cain hated, that is verse 12 of 1 John 3, Cain hated and murdered because his own deeds were evil. Evil and his brother's righteous. In other words, he was of the evil one. And the evil one trades in motives of jealousy and envy. It was his jealousy over Abel's superior righteousness. The light of Abel's righteousness, which Hebrews tells us is by faith, and God's acceptance of him, only then revealed the darkness and the sinfulness of Cain's heart. It was threatening to Cain, and let me suggest that unless the Spirit of God changes our hearts, that our response would be something like that, because John presents Cain as the model of the world, you see, of humanity in rebellion against God, the world defined in that way, as I think John intends it to be, is Cain's posterity. The world will continue to respond to righteousness in the same way Cain did. The same devil who inspired Cain to hate and ultimately murder Abel has the world in his grip. And so you can follow in the message of the gospel that we should love one another. Or you can follow in the footsteps of Cain who was of the evil one. Love or hate, those are the two options. And then thirdly, in verses 13 to 18, the outworking of all this in the two paths. There's the path of life and there's the path of death. Now John's both obvious and subtle here. He says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, given the example of Cain, do not be surprised that the world hates you, just as Cain hated Abel. 
But John's point ultimately is more subtle than that. Hatred from the world we can expect, we can understand. John's concern is that such hatred never find its way into the life of the church. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. So John uses Cain, the epitome of treachery, as an example of how God's people must not regard one another. We can expect that sort of thing from the world. We should abhor its presence in the church. That way is the path of death, John says. The way of life, of eternal life, is the path of love. The way of love. Notice also that for John, here between verses 14 and 15, you could argue that not loving is in some way equivalent to hating. Whoever does not love abides in death, John says in verse 14. Then verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. See the the way John just moves right from one to the other. One need not go to the point of physical murder, friends, as Cain did. The inner desire is enough. In fact, God's very interested in our desires. John's given us here a sort of equation, hasn't he? Not to love is in some way equal to hating, and that is in some way equal to murdering. And John's not exaggerating. He seems to have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in mind. You can read Matthew chapter 5 at some point later, and you'll find the same teaching there. John reflects faithfully the teaching of Jesus that what goes on in the human heart is of supreme concern. If I hate somebody, if I even simply choose not to love that person, I'm no different in some fundamental way from a murderer in my attitude toward him or her. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And here John now has focused so much on the negative example, and we've kind of gone down into the darkness, that we can lose sight of his point, which is that if you abide in the light of God, you love. So Cain's the negative example. Jesus Christ is, of course, the positive one. By this, John writes, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Note carefully how John puts that. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The love of which John speaks is not merely a sentiment. It's something we see in reality. It's practical expression. And the greatest expression of all, of course, is the death of Jesus Christ for us. So let me suggest then a definition. Let me suggest that love in the biblical sense is selfless, often self-sacrificial service for the sake of another. Selfless, 
often self-sacrificial service for the sake of another. I mean, there's lots of definitions of love, right, in different cultures and different times that float around and vie for acceptance, and you ask people on the street what love is, and you'll get all kinds of responses, I'm sure. For John, there's one central defining image. It's Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus himself taught that self-sacrifice was the ultimate expression of love. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, that he lay down his life for his friends. So John's willing, considering that, to take it one step further. John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. According to John, eternal life is evidenced not only in a general love for all humankind, but in a particular love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, if such love for each other within the church is missing... I'd go so far as to ask of what use it is to love those outside. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So then Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So that John's final concern in the passage that we're in this morning is to make it clear just how practical this love should be. I mean, we've moved from the the completely abstract theological statement that God is light to the very concrete, practical demonstration of self-sacrificial love for others. True love, John reminds us, is revealed not only in the supreme sacrifice of Jesus, as if you're only really loving someone if you die for them. That ultimate expression is indeed expressed in all lesser givings. Not many of us will be called to literally lay down our lives. But we all do constantly have the opportunity to share of our resources with those in need, sometimes at real cost to us. Verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Now obviously the world's goods here, the Greek is just bios, stuff of life, (laughs) stuff of life. The world's goods that John refers to here do include money and material possessions. That's not all they include. One commentator says love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. So that when any of us who have the world's goods, the stuff of life, sees a brother or a sister in need, when we see it, when we see that, we take the time to look long enough to appreciate and understand the circumstances, something's supposed to happen. In your heart, you're supposed to love that brother or sister, which means then you give of your stuff of life. You may give money and possessions. How can we say that we're willing to lay down our lives for our brothers if we're unwilling to part with money for their sake? So sure, it can mean that. We may give our time. 
That's often what a person needs more than money, isn't it? It takes time. Who has time? To be a friend, to listen, to relieve loneliness. We may give of spiritual resources as well, though through, through, through a word of encouragement and exhortation from the scriptures, through consistent intercessory prayers. And I don't, those are not simple. Those actions can be a great sacrifice because sometimes the spiritual battles are very real and very intense and the energy required to do those things is staggering. All of this is love. And dear friends, this is the point. A consistent lifestyle, a consistent lifestyle of practical, sacrificial love is what God expects of his children. Because it's the way of life. Because it's the way of God. And if I may, though the time is gone, I do want to say that I've been moved many times by the way I've seen this sort of love at work among you. Because it's often the pastor's privilege to see things that nobody else gets to see. So I've seen how there are those here who give of your material possessions for the needs of others. And I've seen how there are some of you who give sacrificially of your time. And I've seen how some of you give of your spiritual resources, even at great cost, out of love for others in this community. And I just, with all my heart as your pastor, I urge you, keep loving and indeed grow into even greater love like this for one another. And I know that it's not something that you somehow make yourself do of your own volition and the credit all goes to you for it, (laughs) even though it does require effort. I know that at bottom, this life of love is what God empowers in each of his children by his spirit. This is John's point. So that we should find that though it does take effort, though it does cost, it is at the same time the most beautifully natural thing we can do. Loving one another is a matter of life and death, dear friends. It's not optional. It's not for next week or next month or next year when you've had the chance to finally get life in order. That never happens. That never happens. It's for right now. Because it's always what characterizes the Christian life. Whoever does not love abides in death, the Apostle warns. So it is to all of us that John writes in verse 18. I'll make them my words to you as well. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.